Welcome to Denim Hunters Podcast. My name is Britt Eaton. You're listening to the very first episode of the Denim Hunters Podcast. My name is Thomas and I'm your host. Whether denim is your passion or your profession, or maybe both, this is the podcast for you. Denim Hunters is a blog-turned-consultancy platform. We direct denim business through insights, creativity, and action. If you have a denim business and you'd like to know more about how we can help you grow it, go to denimhunters.com forward slash work. Now, before we get to the interview with Britt Eaton, I wanted to let you know how much I appreciate that you're tuning in to this very first episode. And I have a small favor to ask of you to help me grow this podcast. Would you share it with five denim heads you know? Ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are also more than welcome. And don't forget to subscribe to get notified when new episodes come out. If you don't know Britt Eaton already, you're in for a treat. He has the most incredible story, and I hope you will enjoy this interview. However, I do want to apologize in advance that the sound quality is a little sketchy. So I hope you can live with that, and again, please excuse us. All right, we're almost ready to get to the interview. But first, here's the FAQ of this episode. Is, is there a question that people ask all the time? Well, you know, yeah. I mean, if people ask me stupid questions like, hey, where'd you find that? It's like, shut up. You know, I'm not going to tell you. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. I'm a fisherman and I'm out fishing. I'm not going to tell you where my fishing hole is or what, you know, bait I use to catch my fish. Um, so I think that's a pretty dumb question. Another question is, um, people ask is, uh, you know, basically people are curious that you can actually make money doing this and it's a substantial amount of money. Like, you know, I think from the beginning, people couldn't believe I did this full time. Uh, they thought maybe I did this part time and I made money doing something else full time, but I've done this full time since 1997 and it's a hell of a good way to make a living. If you have a question that you'd like me to answer or ask my guest in a future episode, you can submit it at denimhunters.com forward slash questions. You can send it in as text, which I'll then read out, or you can record it as audio, which we can then play back on the podcast. Just remember to state your name and your Instagram username. Shit. Holy shit. Holy shit. Holy fucking shit. Oh my God, Indy, 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 come here, come here, come here, you're not going to believe this. Look, look at out the window, the little babies, the little babies there and there. Oh my God, we got to get them. We got to get a couple. Thomas, hang on one second. Go tell Z, you can get the ones over there if you can catch them. Oh my God, I can't freaking believe it. There's baby goslings right outside the window of my office. <laughs> There's, they're, they're amazing. Z, they're tiny ones. We've been looking for... Uh, it's uh, sorry, man. I know we got to do this, but this is unbelievable no, 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 that they're fine. here right now. So we live on a river, and every every year the river rises, and a lot of the little baby goslings get swept out to sea. And here we have them right here in front of our house, like ten feet from me right now. <laughs> you see them, Indy? But I can't go get them because I want to call with you. So crazy. So. I mean, literally, I rafted yesterday. We raft every day 
And yesterday, I was, we were paddleboarding and kayaking, looking for them for five hours, all up and down the And I look out the window of my office. Wow. All right, Britt. So um, let's get back to, to the basics here, because um, please tell us your name and where you live and what you do. Yeah, uh, my name is Britt Eaton, and I live in Durango, Colorado. And uh, amongst other things, I uh, go out searching for old jeans that are valuable and uh, other old clothing. And I'm sort of addicted to the road and traveling around looking for cool old uh, textiles. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so, so is that how you would? I mean, I'm I'm probably going to jump around these questions a little bit now, but but is that how you would describe what you do to someone who's never heard of you or what you do? I, you know, every time anyone asks me, you know, what I do, I give them a different answer, honestly, because <laughs> what I do is always evolving. I mean, it used to be I went to thrift stores and found old clothing and Levi's, and I would uh, when I first got started in Florida. Uh, there was like a, a buy sheet that I would get from these two different companies who would provide pickers like me with, 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 uh, forms and the forms were what they were buying and how much they were paying. And I would go into the thrift stores armed with this sheet that said, you know, Levi's 501s, $15, uh, you know, and, and, and so any amount that I could get them for less than 15 was the profit. And they would give you, um, shipping tags too. So you didn't have to pay the shipping. So basically I'd go in, I'd, the Levi rack would come out and there'd be five pairs of used Levi's for $2 each. I'd look at my sheet mm-hmm. and see that I could sell them for 15 and know that I was going to make $13 each. So I'd buy them and then I, and then I take them and, you know, every couple of days I'd send using the, the shipping tags that this company provided, I'd send this stuff off and a week later my check would come in the mail and then I'd cash that check and go out and get their new buy sheet. And it was like, you know, Western Pearl Snap shirts or cowboy boots and all these different items were on the sheet. When was this? I mean, what what, what, what year are we talking now? 1990, let's see, 1997 is when I started doing Levi's full-time. So so tell me more about, uh, about that girl and that trip. <laughs> that was okay. I've been to 70 countries. I'm very, you know, been around the world a bunch. Um, but... The, 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 okay. So my friend, my friend, Nicole and I, uh, arrived in Salzburg, Austria. And when we got to the train station, this is in 1992, we got to the train station and we saw a banner like saying that Carlos Santana was going to be in Salzburg. So we're like, Oh crap, we must've missed it, you know, or maybe it's in the future. Cause we were only going to be there for one night. And it turns out it was that night. And, and I love Carlos Santana. I don't know if you know him, but Phenomenal, yeah, of course. Phenomenal yeah. artist uh, played at Woodstock. He's Grammy, Grammy winning, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame type of guy. But all the tickets were sold out. So my friend was my girl that I was with was just a friend, and she ended up getting in with like the band because she was cute. And I had to scale like a ten thousand year old church and and climb down the wall of the church. It was like run away from monks or something, you know. I mean, it was like crazy. And I got in. And, you know, partied all night. We went backstage with the band and I met this girl and da, 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 had this torrid affair for a night. And then uh, I went back to her hostel with her and there was this Australians running the hostel. And uh, I slept in her room. And in the morning, the Australian guys, they found me and they wanted to beat me up really bad. So <laughs> I escaped by putting a bunch of uh, 
I went downstairs where they were waiting for me. They said, you better get up and meet us downstairs. And when I went down the stairs, I could hear them talking about how, what they were going to do to me. And actually there was another guy with me who had been with the girl's friend. And, uh, and we heard them and they were like doing like training, like at like six o'clock in the morning, like literally they woke us up at six in the morning and they were like doing like boxing training, getting ready to kick our asses. And so we ran back upstairs and we got chased by them all through this huge old historic mansion type hostel building. And we ended up having to climb out a window on the third floor and use bed sheets and escape down back onto the street. Seriously. No joke. It's like, it's like a movie almost. Yeah. Well, I mean. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent like a movie. And I, I've had a lot of those. I've been chased by police in Mexico. I've been in jail in Mauritania in Africa. I've been in jail in Greece facing six months been in jail in America a couple of times. I mean, I definitely had a movie light for sure. Okay. Okay. So, so this is, uh, so all of the Santana and escaping that uh, hostel, that was way before you got into the business. Yeah, that was 1992, but I was exporting Harley Davidson's at the time. So yes, that's yes. that Santana trip. Uh, I'd already had a motorcycle being shipped to, uh, to Amsterdam, uh, to, sorry, to Rotterdam. And so at the mm -hmm. end of that three months traveling with my friend, the idea was I would meet up with the motorcycle and uh, I was going to be riding it. Uh, uh, and I actually ended up riding it to Norway and went through Copenhagen. And since I was coming from Holland, I got searched really heavily. Plus, you know, I had like <laughs> long hair and sideburns. I had these ridiculous motorcycle sideburns that were like a chops, you know, that came down to yeah, my, yeah. almost to my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Proper Lemmy style, I guess. Then yes, exactly. Yeah, wait, yeah. that's the guy from uh, the guy from uh, Game of Thrones had chops like that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, guy yeah. we were exactly, just talking yeah. about. Yeah, he had chops like yeah. that. So not yes, only yes. did I get searched really bad going through Copenhagen and, and stuff, um, is uh, the other thing that happened was uh, what else happened? There was something else that crazy that happened. Oh yeah, the coolest thing ever, man. When I was riding my Harley-Davidson motorcycle through Sweden and small little villages in Norway and Sweden and Denmark, I swear to God, people would come out and salute me. You know, it wasn't all the time, but it happened a couple times that maybe it only happened once. I don't know. But I will tell you this. That was a time where uh, definitely Americans were held in higher esteem than we are now, for mm. one. Um It, later on in 1999, I ended up getting an attacked uh, in Greece because I was an American. And uh, that's why I was almost in jail for six months in Greece because wow. of the fight, the fight that I was in. And I, I pretty much destroyed these two asshole Greek guys uh, who attacked my cousin. But that's and, and, and actually there was a uh, there was a, um, the the, uh, the the U.S. embassy had to get involved. Our ship that we were on was uh, put and like a traction they couldn't we couldn't leave and stuff like that till our trial was done it was crazy i was facing six months in prison in greece What? and that was an yeah that was anti-american attack kind of a thing and also mm -hmm. so you know but but back in those days in 92 uh you know people kind of liked americans more and harley davidson's were super popular that's why i was bringing the motorcycle there but but anyway that all led to the levi business Yeah, yeah. So you were you were exporting. Uh, so so you did the same thing with Harleys then in the early nineties. I mean, you found Harleys in the U.S. and then you exported them to Europe and um, the rest of the world to to make money yeah. like that. That's what got me into the Levi's. Right. First, it was Harley Davidsons, and everybody mm -hmm. was like, 
everybody was like, Hey, what, you know, why don't you bring us some Levi's on your next trip? So I did a couple Harley Davidson trips. And then what I realized is, is that, uh, you don't have to kickstart Levi's, you know, and these, <laughs> these, these, uh, and, and so what happened was I actually was a kind of a drinker, which I still am a bit, but I got drunk and fell in a well in Princeton, New Jersey at Princeton university partying. And I had three motorcycles on a boat heading to, uh, heading to, uh, to, uh, Gothenburg, Yotaboy and yeah, Sweden. Yeah. And, uh, but, but I had to get on the plane to go meet them, but I had broken ribs from falling in this well. And that's when I realized that, that Harley Davidson business wasn't the best thing for me because in order to get the, um, customs, uh, in order not to get charged for the, uh, what do they call it? A value tax VAT or yeah, whatever. Yeah, 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 you, have, yeah. you have to bring over the more historic older ones, but those ones you need to kickstart. And if you ever try to kickstart a Harley Davidson from 1955 with the broken ribs, that is not fun, my friend. <laughs> uh, wow okay so so you mentioned some other things that i think we just need to clarify you said pickers and you said these sheets that you got tell us more about that yeah well it's pretty interesting and i'm sure that um i'm sure that somebody still does something similar now but before mm-hmm. there was before there was ebay and instagram and all these different sales methods people have at their disposal now which you know, I feel about them. If you can't beat them, join them. I -hmm. like the old style way. You know, if you found a pair of Levi's back in, or if you, if if you found a person that had a pair of Levi's back in 1997 and they wanted to sell them, their only choice was to sell them to somebody like me, somebody that was a dealer, right? They didn't have the option to go out there and get retail price by putting them on eBay or Instagram or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it was a great business to be in uh, at that time. And also these, these sheets, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like you were, um, you were, you were in the oyster business and you were making money with the oysters. You were buying them at a, at a, and then selling them as a commodity to these companies like Farley Enterprises out of Utah and, uh, Green for Jeans out of San Francisco. These were companies that were buying vintage clothing to export to Japan. And Farley Enterprises actually had an auction and they could have been eBay. Like this guy, John Farley, wherever he is right now, he probably sits in bed and moans all day and drinks whiskey because he says to himself, I could have been uh, Pierre Omidar, the founder of eBay. He was doing eBay before eBay was doing eBay. Seriously. Hmm. Yeah. And by the way, Pierre Omidar, the only reason he started eBay was to sell Beanie Babies on the Internet. How about that? How cool is that? <laughs> that's, a, that's a true story. So he got right. into it because he, eBay started because of basically collectibles and antiques and Farley Enterprises was doing it prior to eBay. So so you got these, I mean, you got connected to these companies and you got these sheets to go out and buy stuff. Uh, and, and you said this was then 97, something like that. Um, yeah. And, and then, then what, what happened then? I mean, you were doing that for some years. So t- tell me more about that. So my origin story in this business is... I've, I've never been one to like test the waters to see if it's cold. I just jump right the hell in, you know, and learn and figure it out. And that's how I did this. I was doing the Harley Davidsons. Everybody in Europe wanted Levi's. So I bought a, I didn't, I didn't like quit the Harley Davidson business, but I decided I was going to complement that business by going into the Levi business as well and sell, you know, basically everything American, Harleys, Levi's, whatever. And so I bought a bale of Levi's down in Florida 
right around that time, my car got repossessed. I worked on a commercial fishing boat and got uh, confined to my quarters for insubordination. <laughs> and uh, so I, I was in a lot of trouble and my car got repossessed. I had no choice but to take a backpack and rollerblades and go to the flea market at four o'clock in the morning. And it was funny because I was standing in line with my big old backpack filled with Levi's and uh, to sell at the flea market. And everybody else in the line was a car, right? And I'm on my mm -hmm. rollerblades. I'm on my rollerblades and, uh, <laughs> you know, in the line mm -hmm. of cars. Seriously, true story. So, you know, I'm very proud of where I was, where I am now because of where I came from. In other mm -hmm. words, if I like I have a friend who's in this business who had made a lot of money in a different business and then he got into the Levi business in like 1995 and he made a lot of money in Levi's, but he'd already made money in some other business. You know, yeah. I'm much yeah, more yeah. impressed with somebody who comes into this business with, you know, five dollars and they buy one T-shirt and they sell that for ten dollars and they buy two T-shirts and build their way up like that. You know, so so what was it like? You know, you 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 went out to all these different locations and and i think that's that's also what you're what you're known for that that's why you have that you have that show on netflix right that you go out to old places and you find some gold okay just to clarify i actually have three different series that i've hosted um mm -hmm. they're they're all on netflix uh ghost town gold is the one that i'm more known for but not the one i'm most proud of mm -hmm. uh the one i'm most proud of is called the ancient life And that was a, we went around the world and I was like an archaeologist uh, going to Angkor Wat and Easter Island, um, it was Machu Picchu and places like that. And, you know, I was like digging up the truth kind of about you know, ancient history. And then mm -hmm. also there's uh, a show that was on Travel Channel. Um, it only lasted for one episode, unfortunately, because it, that was the one that was the best. It was called Wild Wild Quest. And that was huh. the third and third and final series that I was hosting. And all of them, I can tell you the politics behind it of why that I'm not on TV and none of it I want to talk about. But I just wanted to clarify, I have more, you know, if anybody yeah, yeah. wants to go see some fun, I think it's really fun, especially for kids. I'm like a young kid at heart, kind of. A, I mean, basically, I'm very immature. So, you know, anyone with kids that watches me, I think will like, it'll be cool because it's not, it's like, it's like a stupid romp. It's like that drunk history show, you know, kind of like you got, you're watching some guy who's kind of an idiot and he's having a good time and you're learning stuff and having fun. You yeah, know? yeah. 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 I enjoyed this. I mean, I've only seen, seen the one you, you were doing all of this, uh, you know, you were finding this old stuff and then selling it on. I mean, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you my first big break. Okay. Yeah. So one of the questions on your thing that you were going to ask me, was, uh, you know, have you ever had any hardship? What's the hardest thing and all this stuff? And mm -hmm. my answer to that is, is I, I believe that uh, a rock that's blocking you in the road is you have to look at every rock in the road as an opportunity to find a new path and maybe find a better road than you would have found if you stayed on the road where the rock was. Do you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? And okay. That's been the story of my life. I'll give you an example. My first big break was in 1997. Uh, I had now, uh, I, I, my car had been repoed, uh, I, but I'd made enough money on the rollerblades after a couple months of going to the flea market, selling jeans for $2 each. I bought a bale of Levi's, 1,500 pairs. And when we, it had been bailed up with, you know, compressed for like 20 years. And so when we opened the, 
when we opened it up, it exploded, man. Like, and it became this huge <laughs> mountain and my friends called it Mount Levi. And, uh, so, so that was in my living room of the house I was living in Florida in this, in the ghetto with horrible neighborhood gunshots going on all the time and everything. And I was living with a guy that had been a fishing boat captain. And he's the guy that got me onto the fishing boat that I'd worked on. So mm. anyway, uh, bottom line is, is, uh, so after a few months, I got enough money to buy a crappy car and, uh, I'd, I'd been driving like a fancy Lexus before this. Now I'm in like this crappy, uh, Jeep Cherokee. And one day I took the wrong road to, on the way home. And I got, I got lost uh, getting back to the ghetto house. And this is the story of my life. Getting lost, but finding the path and the place that you wanted to find that you never would have found if you hadn't gotten lost. You see what hmm. I mean? Yeah. And so yeah. I, I, took, I took the wrong turn and I come by and I see this giant warehouse with this open door. And there's just a freaking massive pile of clothing there. I'm like, what in the hell is that place? And I'd never heard of rag houses at that time, right? I didn't know what a rag house was. I just was mm. in this business for two months at that point. So I pull over and it turns out it's, um, it's a guy named Luce. And he's got all these Haitian people sorting clothing to go to Haiti. And they don't want winter clothing. So jeans, denim jackets, anything like that goes in this other pile. And I said, well, mm. what's that pile? He said, that's trash. They were literally taking it all to the dump. They only wanted t-shirts and lightweight dresses and stuff. So I made a deal. Eventually, over time, I got to know this guy. And the deal I made with him was, check this out. As much stuff out of that. And I'm talking, when I say that it was a giant pile of trash, I'm talking about clothing. And I'm talking about a pile that was as big as like, I don't know, like the United Nations building or something. Like, like literally like, like a 50 foot, 50 foot high by a hundred foot wide pile. And I guess once a month they took this pile and they took it all to the dump. So he let me go through it. And at first I was buying items for like $2 a piece. And then I made a deal to buy as much as I could fit in my car for $25 every time. So (laughs) I went there, I went there every day. I spent three or four hours mining this giant pile and coming up with incredible stuff. Also, by the way, running into families of newborn rats that had just been born because the gym, the, uh, the Haitian workers threw all their chicken bones and all their lunch right into this pile of clothing. Cause in their mind, it was mm. trash. So mm. I remember I would mold my way through this, right? Like following veins of denim. Cause you know, the way it works is, is like, sometimes they'd open a big, I guess a bale from goodwill that they were sorting and it was all denim. So they would throw it in this pile altogether. But you know, over time the pile would shift and so you'd like literally have to dig. I mean, it's a miracle that I didn't get suffocated and die in that pile of stuff, honestly. <laughs> and you come face to face with a pile of uh, newborn rats, you know, like literally newts, the ones that are like two inches and they're all pink. Disgusting, man. Totally disgusting. Mm. Mm. Anyway, that's, so, you, so that's how I got started. That, that was my first big break. Uh-huh. And and did you find any good stuff in there? I mean, some anything you still have? Anything that took you through your next big break then? Well... I definitely made a lot of money out of there. I had sort of a mentor, a guy that I met at the flea market and I would bring him the, the, the items that I would find and he would, you know, basically buy them from me. And he was probably paying me a 10th of what they were worth. But every once in a while, he'd come back to me and be like, Hey, you remember that jacket you found in there in that, uh, in that, in that rag place? And I gave you a hundred for it. Well, 
you did a really good job. Here's another hundred dollars. And he'd give me like a little pat on the back and, you know, and I, I saw opportunity in the business because the idea of buying stuff in bulk like that, uh, where basically you pay $25, you get a truckload of stuff. You've got maybe 500 items, right? And you go out there mm-hmm. and sell five of them, get your $25 back. Now you got 495 items that are pure profit, right? Yeah. And that today has means I have 10 giant warehouses with literally millions of items in them and it's all totally paid for. I've already made all my money back on all this stuff. So whenever I sell anything now, it's all profit, right? Hmm. And uh, to, add, to answer another question that you asked, um, if I have anything, so when I left Florida, so that was in Florida and I always wanted to move out West. I just thought I'd get rich on the East Coast and then move out West, but I ended up going broke on the East Coast. So I figured what the hell, if I'm gonna be broke, I might as well be broke in the mountains where I wanna be. Um, so I loaded up the car I had, that shitty Jeep Cherokee, and I had this huge like horse trailer filled with clothing from that Luce's place, that rag house. And mm-hmm. I started leaving Florida, and the car basically started swerving. It couldn't handle the weight. So I pulled over, and I paid a guy $10, and I filled up his dumpster with unbelievable vintage clothing that I took out of the trailer. I, I was actually heading to a wedding in, in uh, New England, so I, di- I didn't have time to sort the stuff that was in the trailer. I literally dumped the whole trailer load into this dumpster and only kept like a tenth of the stuff that I found at Luce's. And it's a shame because when I look back on my life, what I, what I put in that dumpster that day is criminal. It's absolutely criminal. It'd probably be $200,000 of vintage clothing today. But I had no choice. You know, I, I really had no, there was nothing else I could do. I was still pretty broke. You know, I wasn't going to get a storage unit in Florida and then have to come all the way back and get the stuff later. I didn't have the resources for that. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So um, we, we did get a few questions in from uh, from our, our mutual friend, Wouter, as well. Hey, Britt. This is Wouter from uh, Long John. Um, I have a few questions for you. Uh, the first one is, what's your most iconic piece ever found? Okay. So your most iconic piece ever found. Oh, man. uh i i mean there's so many things that would fit that category of the most iconic piece ever found by me but i guess i guess just you know so much of the treasure hunting business is that that moment of discovery that you never forget you know like you know uh memories someone said about memories uh we don't remember we don't remember days, we remember moments or something mm-hmm. like that, you know? We don't remember days, we remember moments. And so in your whole life, there's a few moments that you'll never forget. And I was one day uh, on a rope 350 feet down in a mine, still hanging on the rope with half of the mine hanging above me, ready to fall on me at any minute because it was a very unstable mine and there was a blowout and a collapse. It was horrible. My friend actually said that he wouldn't go down there for a gold bar. That's how dangerous this place was. And I found, I remember picking up this, uh, this pair of pants off the ground and I'm like, what in the hell is this? And I looked at it and I couldn't figure it out because it was Levi's, but it was black. And it turns Hmm. out it was the only known black Levi's jeans from the turn of the century. Levi's didn't even know they made black Levi's. It's called, uh, Oh crap. There's a, uh, there's a code for it. Uh, my friend actually figured it out that 
Mike Harris figured it out. But basically, Levi's did not know they made black Levi's until I found this pair of jeans. <laughs> Crazy. And I had him had him in my collection for years, and finally, uh, finally, somebody talked me out of them, and I sold them. Hmm. So um, here, here comes another question from Arthur. Which item is on your wish list to get your hands on one day? My wish list to get my hands on one day. Hmm. Boy, that's a great question. Uh, I, I, man, I, that's the crazy thing, man. I, I pretty much have everything I've ever wanted and ever needed. <laughs> well, so, you have tin warehouses full of, of yeah. stuff, and I guess most of it is <laughs> denim, right? Uh, uh, not all. No, I wouldn't say most no. of it's denim, but I mean, there's a okay. lot of denim. I mean, I just yeah. bought 20,000 20, pairs of Levi's in February off of a deal that's been closed up forever. You know? Uh, oh, crap. There's a wild turkey out the window right now. <laughs> What's going on with the wild turkey? Yeah, there man? really is. There really is. Hey, Andy, the wild turkey's out there. Sorry. Yeah, no, we, these wild turkeys have been showing up. We never saw them before, and now they're here. And there's one right out of my field right now. <laughs> but, you know... So, so yeah, so as far as getting stuff, I mean, honestly, uh, I guess, okay, I, here's what it is. I sold a Levi tool pocket a few years ago for $50,000, and I don't have a Levi tool pocket in my collection right now. So mm -hmm. I want to get another Levi tool pocket. I also sold uh, what I believe to be possibly the first ever known Levi jacket, um, and I paid $18,000 for it and sold it for $25,000 a few years later. Anyway, I want another one of those. I want a better condition one of those. You know, <laughs> right? But but how do you? I mean, uh, we we can go back. Valter has two more questions, but I mean, hasn't everything been found at this point? The answer is honestly, nothing has been found. Nothing, and nothing, and nothing ever will be found. And what I mean by that is, okay, I'll give you an example. I was in a mine uh, two weeks ago, and. And when I, when I, what I mean is for the early stuff, the pre 1900 stuff, um, yeah. nothing has been found. There's, let's say in the world, there's, uh, a thousand known denim items, jackets, jeans, including canvas pants and jackets that are pre 1900, right? Let's say there's a thousand known ones in the world. I don't think there's that many, but let's just say there's a thousand. There's probably 20,000 more in existence that have not been found and never will be found. And the reason is they're buried underground and the government is blasting mines shut all the time. And it's not like it's easy to find. I, I was in a mine the other day where I know there was, a, there was a pile of rock that I know there was denim in. I know. I just know there was. I didn't see it, but I know it's there. And guess what? It would take me a year to go from one end of this rock pile, not a year, uh, take me a month to go from one end of the rock pile to the other to get it. And that's why you don't see the, er, for the early denim stuff, you don't see much of it ever coming on the market. Uh, and then when you do, it's all in private sales and stuff because, um, you know, a lot of these mines are very gray areas as far as the legality of what you're doing. Um, ethically, there's no dilemma whatsoever. Um, I believe it's completely ethical. You know, just like if you were to go to the beach in Denmark and find, uh, you know, some treasure that's washed up by a ship that, you know, mm -hmm. went down 500 mm -hmm. years ago and there's this golden goblet, it's not unethical for you to take it, but it probably breaks some stupid law you have over there, you know? Mm -hmm. 
just like yeah, yeah. there's there's antiquities laws here that basically make it so that unless you're on private property, uh, you can't access these places and you can't take anything from them. But so, I, um, so actually, what you're doing is is it then illegal? I mean, because I guess a lot of these mines that are they on private property? Well, no, it's it's not illegal. If if you go on private property, it's not illegal. And honestly, it might not even be illegal to do some of this stuff on public property, depending mm -hmm. on the age of what you're finding and all this stuff. So I don't do anything illegal. Um, and, and if I did, I certainly wouldn't talk about it. <laughs> what, what, I'm, what I'm saying is the, the larger ethical injustice is the fact that the government is blowing up the history of these things before our eyes. In other words, okay, so The only reason the government doesn't close all the mines in the Western United States is because a lot of them have become habitat for different animals like desert tortoises and bats. And bats are one of the most important ecological species because they spread their, um, they spread fruit uh, seeds around and create trees yeah. and things like that. Right. Yeah, and so, yeah. so it's, it's a whole, it's a whole mess of issues here, but basically I'm trying to get the stuff out before the government has a chance to destroy it for all of eternity by blasting the mind shut. And, you know, it's not like, it's not like in some movie where it's a tomb in Egypt where you could blast the opening shut, but in a thousand years you could open the opening and find the stuff inside. It's not like that at all because the mines are human tunnels and because they're human made, they will degrade and have avalanches and collapses over time. Right. So mm -hmm. today there might be, oh, there was an earthquake in California last year and a whole bunch of mines that my friends actually have gone in. They went back and said that after the avalanche or after the earthquake, uh, the mines were totally destroyed inside because of the shaking mm. of the earth and stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, let's get another question from Wouter then. Which item do you regret by letting them go in the past? Okay. It's funny. I, I don't regret selling that $50,000 tool pocket Levi's and I don't really regret selling that jacket either. The one I regret the most is this unbelievable painted Levi's. It was about a 1902 pair of Levi's that the guy, the original owner must have been a painter and they had this unbelievable green color. In fact, I don't know if you've ever seen my catalog, but they're on the, they're on the uh, front page or maybe the back page of one of the catalogs that I did, uh, my second catalog that I did uh, of my collection. And uh, they're extraordinary. They're absolutely extraordinary pair of jeans. And I never should have gotten rid of them because they're, they transcend money. They're, they're an art piece. They're an extraordinary art piece to me. And in fact, their, their, their matching pair is that overalls that's from stronghold. And it's right here in my office above me as I talk. And, I wish I, this one's amazing and I'm glad I didn't sell this one, but I sold its mate that they came together from the same original painter, house painter or whatever in the, he'd been in 1890s, 1900s, mm -hmm. uh, house painter, I guess. So I do regret that. And I'm going to, I'm, I'm trying to get it back. I, I've done that before, by the way, sell things and then buy them back <laughs> for a lot more than I sold them for. I, I would say in general, in this business, there's a lot more regret about things you didn't buy or things you sold, then the regret you feel on things you bought. Mm -hmm. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it, I don't regret too many things that I've bought. I, I do regret right. a lot of things I've gotten rid of uh, or, or things yeah. I didn't buy yeah, yeah, because yeah. I hesitated, you know? That makes me think of something else. I mean, so if you have all this insanely valuable stuff, you know, sitting at your home and in these warehouses, isn't your insurance like crazy expensive or how do you deal with that? Uh, so as far as insurance goes, not enough, not enough. I, I don't have enough. You're right. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, you know, they talk about book writing and they say, uh, if you can't do something, write a book about it. And if you can't write a book about it, teach. <laughs> <laughs> That's like an expression, right? Like, so I'm yeah, yeah. still busy doing stuff. So I haven't written a book about what I'm doing yet, but I will. And I intend to, and I always have the opening lines of my book and book titles going on in my head. because so I want to write a book about what I, my, my adventures have been unbelievable. Um, but as far as lately, everyone has been telling me exactly what you're talking about. Like, God, you got this great collection. How are you protecting it? I, I had a friend, uh, Larry from Heller's Cafe. He's sort of the grand poobah of American vintage. And he told me the other day, he said, look, man, you've got an amazing collection. You need to create like a, uh, you know, like a climate controlled vault archives yeah, type yeah. of thing. And so, you know, it's a matter of investment and everything. And, and, and am I going to put the money you know, let's say I have to put $50,000 into creating a vault to protect what I already have, or I could use that $50,000 to go acquire three more awesome pieces for my collection. I don't know, you know? Yeah, but you just risk, you know, everything losing in value, I guess. But, but I mean, yeah, of course, it, it, it's, it's, I see the dilemma. It is exactly. It is exactly a dilemma. And I'll also say that one good thing is in Southwest Colorado, where I live here, It's very, very dry, very low humidity. So humidity, you know, moisture in the air really hurts uh, fabric. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I live in a pretty good place, but it's very sunny. And so, for instance, right now I'm in my office and I'm looking at the sun coming through the window. Yeah. Well, let, let's play this last one then. And, uh, okay. yeah. and the last one is where did you find the most craziest items most of the time? So where do you find the crazy, I mean, wh where do you find the stuff? What are these, you know, locations that you go into? Well, I think like I was saying before, there's always been an evolution. It used to be the thrift stores. And then I found out about the rag houses. And then I found, you know, I went to ranches and old, old ranches. But now it's mines. It's definitely mine exploring. And I would say at least 50% of the time you go on a mine exploring trip. And I'm talking about like a five day expedition. You don't find anything like literally nothing. So it's the only way you can afford to do something like that is if you've already made money doing something else, or if it's just, if you just strictly look at it as like a hobby, you know? And yeah, so it's, yeah. it's more, it's more of a hobby, I guess, because it's an adventure and an adrenaline rush. But I, but I definitely, the mines is where if you're going to find something awesome, you know, it's going to be in a mine, you know? Yeah. Okay. So, so okay, we, we're jumping a little around, but I want to know also, I mean, I'm curious about those warehouses that you mentioned. You said 10 warehouses. Are they are they at your where you live or where they're at? So I had a one massive warehouse in Durango in town and I had a store mm -hmm. and the store was near nearby about five blocks from the warehouse. And basically I, I, um, I got rid of my retail store and rented out the building and then I didn't need the warehouse in town anymore. So I sold that. 
and I moved everything to my house. We moved 17 semi truckloads of stuff to my house. And I built, I built like there's 10 different buildings here. Three of them are giant warehouses that are totally packed. I mean, totally packed, like crazy packed with stuff. And then I've got a couple of box cars, uh, two or three smaller buildings. And then I have this killer mining building that I created as like a showroom that I, that I had torn down. It was an old 1800s mill building and I had it moved over here and, uh, rebuilt on my place and stuff. There's some pictures on it on my Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds crazy. So everything's packed and, you know, hopefully someone will hear this and want to go and, you know, open a store in, uh, you know, Copenhagen and <laughs> come buy a hundred thousand dollars of stuff from me and make some money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's see. Let's see. Uh, so I guess we are at a point where we are coming to the end here. Um, I, I, before we get the last question, uh, I wanted to, you know, talk about the, the scene that you're in and what it looks like today, you know? So, so we already, of course, touched upon it, but, but I'm also thinking if someone's listening now and they're thinking, wow, I want to be like Brit, I want to do this thing. How, I mean, okay, let's, let's just assume that, that, you know, someone want to go out there and, and go into mines and risk their lives for a living. But, but yeah, what, what would that be like? I mean, could you even do that? And, and how would you get the connections and all of this, you know? So, yeah, I think in the vintage clothing business, it's always been a very secretive business where nobody mm-hmm. really wants to tell their secrets or give anybody help or advice or anything. There's things that, that I learned about details of Levi's that, you know, like for instance, um, uh, you know how Levi's have the capital E on the red tab, right? If they're pre-1971. So mm-hmm. if the red tab is missing, there's a way to tell if it's a big E Levi's, even if it doesn't have the red tab. But I was in the business for 10 years before someone taught me that detail because nobody wants anybody else to know anything. But now I've changed my tune. Now I'm like, hey, I want people to get into this business. One reason is, and this answers a question you sent me earlier on on the thing, is you asked what motivates me or what inspires me. And I thought about that a lot. And what it is is competition. I'm motivated by competition. If I know that somebody else is an up and coming, you know, let's just say we're, uh, let's say that I'm an Olympic skier and, and I'm sort of like on the downward side of my career, but I see some young buck coming and they're, they're getting really good. They might break my records. That gets me back in the game. Do you know what I mean? So competition is what motivates me more than anything, I think. And, you know, I like, I like, I like having something that motivates me because otherwise you know, it's easy to sit around here and relax and enjoy what I've already got. I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to keep going. I want to get more. Um, so, hmm. so there is that. And then what you asked me to answer that is what I see is for, and what I see in this business is, I guess the point is I've never known anyone who's been in this business, who's no longer in this business. In other words, this is a great business to be in because nobody gets out of it, which means that everybody must be making money in it. Uh, the only person I could think of that's not in the business anymore, they're either dead or they're, uh, or they, um, one guy had a gambling problem and, uh, you know, left everybody with a huge amount of debt. Uh, he owed everybody money, lost it all in Vegas. And, uh, you know, people broke into his warehouse and took all this stuff because he owed everybody money. And I, that was in LA, but I was in Colorado. So I could, I wasn't a part of that warehouse break in, um, to get my stuff back, but he ended up owing me $25,000 to this day. 
you know? Um, hmm. So nobody gets out of this business, but you know, it's always changing. Um, you know, a lot of vintage dealers that have been around a while aren't very happy with the direction of, you know, vintage t-shirts being the, you know, the big thing now, like, you know, not 1990s t-shirts are so popular, but I don't even understand that business. I really don't. It's almost like it's different than my business, but I feel like it's great that young people are excited about vintage and get into this. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so, you know, a lot of young people get into this because they like, they like vintage t-shirts to wear and then they start buying and selling them. And once they do that, they'll always be in this business to some extent. In other words, they may not do this as a job anymore. They may do it as a hobby. They may one day be, you know, walking down the street and see a yard sale and buy a vintage t-shirt out of uh, memory of when they were doing this. So I, like I said, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody ever really gets out of it, you know? No, no, no. Interesting. Interesting. So um, the last question that I want to ask. So so let's imagine, and, and God forbid, but let's just say your house is burning, your family is outside, okay. everyone's safe but there's something that you want to go back and save inside the house. What is that? Well, it would be my family videos and my family pictures because they're more valuable yeah. than any, any denim that I have. And even though I've got a lot of great denim and a lot of great artifacts that would be you know, horrible for the world if they were to be lost, I, I can't think so much about the world. I'd be selfish and think just about my family and grab my family family keepsakes, you know? Mm-hmm. But but if we have to, oh, there's my picture. There's the picture of the uh, yeah. It's on the front of my uh, of my catalog. Was that uh, green green Levi's? Um, yeah. If I, if it was, I don't know what the hell I would do to be honest with you. I mean, I have one area that I call the vault that I would definitely that would be the first jeans I would find. But you know, I have all these videos of myself GoPro videos of myself in mines. I've got all my TV show DVDs on copy. You know. I'd want to, I'd want mm-hmm. all that stuff too. So it's a terrible thing to think about. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I mean, like I said, of course this, no one's hoping this happens, but uh, it's just interesting. And by the way, I mean, you, you know that you could digitalize and then store all your stuff in yeah. the cloud. You know, I need to not do, your jeans, I, need to do I, I know, I know I need to do all that, man. I really do. My, my mom started doing that like recently and, and she's sending me all these pictures from when I was a kid. It's like, Hey, I got this one digital slides. And but yeah, you know, takes time and, and yeah, time is money, I guess. So, uh, well, we thought there's anyway. some company called legacy box. I thought about sending all of our stuff to them, but what if they screw it up? You know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, this has been uh, a lot of fun. And, um, is there anything that, um, I mean, I could, I mean, we could do a whole podcast series where we just hear your story, I think. So, uh, great, man. Yeah. And anytime you want to talk, I'm in, I mean, I, I got nothing better to do than I love talking about this stuff and I think it's really fun. And if there's somebody out there that ends up listening and they think to themselves, I don't know if I could do it and da, 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 you know, the greatest journey begins with the first step, go buy one thing and try to sell it and then go buy two things and try to sell it. You know, you don't have to. You don't have to commit your whole life to this direction, but if you get in part time and and you start making money, uh, it sure beats freaking punching a clock and working a regular job, you know. And mm-hmm. you know there are a lot of studies out there, and I'm sure you know this that that I've just been just the other day a guy sent me a thing. There's uh, the recycled clothing business is supposed to like be more 
volume globally than the regular fashion business in like 20 years. So yeah, like, you know, people buying used clothing is a majorly good industry to get into in general, you know, like if somebody had some money and they could find one of those rag houses and I know where a lot are, they could contact me. I could tell them, tell them where to go. You can go in there and you could buy a bale of t-shirts, right? A bale for let's say $500 and you get 2000 t-shirts, right? And most of them are crap, but maybe you sell 10 out of that bale of thousands and you get your original capital back. And then all the rest of the stuff you sell over time and that's your gravy on the deal. And so, and I, and, and it's, it's just like, um, you know, the way the future is going right now, uh, you know, people want to get into things like uh, farming again, because the, the farmlands are all going. So people are going to be selling beef for a lot more than they were selling before and stuff like that, you know, and, and, and yeah, recycled yeah. clothing is a good thing too. Yeah. Well, um, this has been a pleasure. And um, if if people want to get in touch, uh, you it's on Instagram or where can they where can they reach you uh, the easiest? Well, I have the two Instagrams. I have the uh, the at original Indiana jeans, and that's um that's original Indiana jeans. That's my moniker, Indiana jeans. And I could tell mm -hmm. some stories about how I got that moniker, and also some of the unbelievable you know, serendipitous situations about that moniker at some other time. But at Original Indiana Jeans and then my sales page I just started is called at Carpe Denim Sales. And that is right now, um, it's private, but I'm letting, you know, people in if they're buyers. And then I'm going to have another yeah. Instagram I'm going to start called Carpe Denim Buyers Club, where people are going to have to make a donation to charity and then they can get to see the whole collection and there'll be like ludicrously high prices on all that stuff but it'll be available for possible purchase so nice well um i think that's a great place to end so um yeah and uh thank you for everyone who's listening uh, yeah and i want to thank thomas and wooter for uh you know being so uh interested in this whole industry and and keeping the passion alive and for all you guys do so thank you very much You've made it to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a future episode. And if you want to get more content about denim, go to denimhunters.com. Oh, 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 oh